Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. The Varroa mite situation has become the biggest news in Australian beekeeping industry, with many beekeepers speculating not only what will happen to their own bee colonies, but the control of the situation in New South Wales. As of the 23rd of August, the mite has been found at Euston area on the border of Victoria and New South Wales, which has sparked more fear and conversation about the mite. And as of the 29th of August, the mite's been found further down the border. Today, Peter Norris from Heritage Honey in Tasmania joins us. Peter has been involved in beekeeping for over 35 years, running Heritage Honey with his wife Trisha and is the Vice President of the Southern Tasmanian Beekeepers Association. He was also a beekeeper in the UK when the Varroa mite struck, which devastated Britain in the 90s. Peter, it's great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. What was your initial impression on the Varroa mite pandemic and has your impression changed in the last few years? Well, I was in the UK when I first had to deal with Varroa. And um, I, I wasn't. I was a fairly novice beekeeper in those days. I'd only been keeping bees about six, seven years, and um, I sort of got out fairly quickly to about 150 hives as a, as a hobby. And after the varroa was found, they lost 80% of the bees in the southeast of England, and I crashed down to 25 hives. And uh, that that was sort of rectified a little bit once we were allowed to start using apistan strips and things, um, the chemicals to the control the mite. And, and it is just a very steep learning curve. But, you know, it's here in Australia now and I think we've got the benefit of other countries' experience and the control methods that they use. You know, we, we've got an advantage in that really that we um we're not going to lose so many hives i don't think but at the moment we're in eradication mode and um we are losing a lot of hives because they're trying to eradicate it and how long that will go i don't know could it reach tasmania what would you say would be the consequences of that i mean i guess you would say it's more a matter of when not if it will reach other states right oh yeah i think that's pretty much the case um Western Australia has got very strict border controls on honey and bees and they may be able to keep it out there. Kangaroo Island also has very strict controls on uh, bee and bee products. And Tasmania, we do have good controls, but nowhere near as strict as, as Kangaroo Island or Western Australia. Um, I'd, I'd like to hope that we could keep it out of here, but there is a real possibility that it could already be here. Um, and yeah, it'll be three years before we really know whether it's here or not. You know, there were queens being imported into the state before the varroa was discovered in New South Wales, and some of those queens came from around Tocal College, which was initially in a clear zone, but is now in a red zone. So it's possible that those queens were subject to varroa mites before they were exported here. I've been campaigning for 20 years for the state to bring in a queen import van, but the the chief vet has never, ever seen fit to do so, probably because he's been lobbied by a couple of big beekeepers who won't set up their own queen-rearing operations. And what are, what are the advantages of importing queens from um, other places? Well, you get a mated queen and you bring them in in September, early October, and your, your hives get off to a quick start. There's no question about that. 
but there are other ways around it. Um, we've we've looked at running a commercial queen breeding operation in Tasmania, and the numbers just don't stack up. Uh, there's about six thousand queens a year come in, and you know if you're working thirty forty dollars a queen, the amount of capital outlay to set up a queen rearing operation doesn't stack up. But most of us raise our own queens. You know, you look at Blue Hills, myself, Stevens is in Mole Creek, Julian at Tasmanian Honey Company. We all raise our own queens and have done for years. And uh, it's just a matter of making the adjustments. Um, I've been experimenting raising queens in January and February because we get better matings. And that's really the problem in Tassie. We've got such a short season. We've only got three months. And and getting matings can be difficult, particularly if we get a bad spring. You know, if it's raining and cold and the queens don't fly, they don't they don't mate in time. So it's a it's a huge impact not being able to to import them, I guess, for a lot of especially small beekeepers. Would you say? No, look, it's it's not that hard to raise small beekeepers. Have got there's no problem with them raising their own queens. I mean, it's just, they can do that at any time, really. The, the problem in Tasmania is that if, if we try and raise queens late, we don't get the colonies up in time for the leatherwood. So we're moving all the bees out to the leatherwood at the end of December, beginning of January, and then we're flat out taking honey off. So raising queens in January and February is is really difficult because you're flat out taking honey off and extracting, and um, you don't want one more job to do. But some of the bigger operators running 4,000 hives, if they look at how much they spend on importing queens, they could actually employ somebody just to raise their queens in January and February. What do you think about the DPI effort in New South Wales? There was a lot of uh, optimism about the situation being under control in the early news reports, but now there seems to be an alarmingly growing situation. Yeah, look, I, I was up there as a volunteer in July last year, um, testing and killing bees, and um, I thought their response was really good, actually. It was a, it was a really well-organised response, and, and the fireys, um, the, they just had all the communications and you know, whoever's going to launch a sort of response like that, you need the, the, the fire brigade involved because without them it wouldn't have worked so well. And I thought they had a really good chance of eradicating it, but it would seem that, you know, the demands of pollination, particularly the almonds, um, is sort of put paid to that. But, you know, it's, it's, spread, it's spread so far now, I just... I just can't see us getting on top of it. I don't like being negative because I'm naturally an optimist. All beekeepers are. You wouldn't be a beekeeper if you weren't. But um, I just think you've got to face reality sometimes. Maybe it is a bit, a bit too late. Would you say the fight is lost? No, I'm not saying it's lost. I mean, the, the people with a lot more expertise than me, and if they say it's still possible, then I'll go with that. That's very optimistic. Well, you've got to be. We just, just, we just all got to be optimistic, and and do as the the government asks. You know, if they say don't move your bees, don't move your bees, and that's been a big part of the problem. Mm, yeah, more management than eradication. There is some hope, but it's getting less. You know, less likely that we'll we'll eradicate it now. Yeah, like you said, you got to trust the experts, right? Yeah, look, I don't like, I don't, I don't want to say yes. That's where we're going to have to go. I'd I'd like to think we could still eradicate it but it's getting more difficult. Can you tell us about your time as a beekeeper in the UK? Uh, what made you take up the hobby? Uh, I was running a Volkswagen Audi garage there. and um, It was pretty demanding and I was head down, tail up in that and I just needed a hobby. And um, 
my mother-in-law lived over the back fence from a, a renowned beekeeper in the UK and she knew of a couple of hives for sale, so I bought them. Then I sort of went to agriculture college one night a week for a couple of years and learned how to look after them properly and and uh, got bitten properly and I was out to 150 hives in two years. So, And I had I had intended to go commercial over there, but it's it was too marginal and um, my business was suffering while I was paying too much attention to the bees. So um, the bees sort of went on the back burner and then Varroa hit. And, uh, yeah, it stayed very much a hobby level over there. And then we came back to Tassie in 99, and I had really no intention of going commercial on the bees. I came back to go farming. And um, <clears throat> oh, just one thing led to another, and I got involved in the fight to save the leatherwood, and next thing we know, we're running 800 hives. So when Varroa mite was found in the UK, what happened? And um, as a beekeeper, what kind of actions were you required to take? And I read that initially many beekeepers over there were not concerned about it at all. Ah, oh, well, it was it was widely established when they found it. So it was a, it was a different situation to Australia. So they went straight into a management mode. Um, they didn't try and eradicate it at all. They did try and put boundaries in across the country, you know, say, right, it's in the south of England and we'll put a, a controller here and you're not allowed to move bees across it. But before we knew it was in Scotland and um, it's been there ever since. But they seem seem to have uh, sort of adapted to it. They've got various control measures, you know, ranging from organic controls to chemical controls. And, uh, you know, I've been back in Tassie for 25 years nearly. as I've sort of lost touch with how beekeeping is going over there now. Would you say that using Apistan is a, is a good uh, good way to eradicate the mite or is it to, is it using is using too many inorganic controls like that um, detrimental? Well, it is detrimental. Um, try and do organic controls first. Um, that's sort of the the last option, in my opinion. Um, there are other controls like uh, various oils, thyme oil, um, oxalic acid, and things like this. You can vaporize in the hive, and that kills mites. Um, drone trapping, where you put a brood a drone comb in the middle of the brood nest and all the mites have a preference for drone brood. So you can take that drone comb out and freeze it, kill all the brood, kill all the mites, and you put it back in the hive and the bees rip it all to bits and you can do it all again. You can't keep doing it because it'll weaken the hive too much, but it is an effective control. And then there are there are other things, as I say, like the, the oils. And if you get it early enough, I think... You, and get your timing right in the season. You can you can keep it fairly well under control. But the the chemical strips um, they leave a residue in the wax, and Australian wax has the the cost of wax has gone through the roof in the last eight or nine years. I couldn't give it away before, and um, they've woken up the fact that the chemical residues in the wax in the rest of the world. Um, is affecting the viability of drones and queens and is affecting their mating. So our wax has been in huge demand because it doesn't have these chemical residues in it. Do you think that the situation in Australia has a lot of similarities to the one in the UK from the 90s? Um, well, all, all countries that have got Varroa have got a lot of similarities. Um, you know, you, you have to exercise control. There are people who say we shouldn't exercise control, we should let the bees sort it out and they will gradually evolve 
into a bee that can handle the mite, and that's all well and good in theory, but beekeepers have got to survive while that's happening. And, you know, everyone can go out of business. But um, in the UK, it's different. You know, we have a, a very even shorter season there than we do in Tasmania, and the brood nest usually shuts down. So there's a, a broodless period, which means that the, the mites are living on the, the adult bees, and that's when you can target them um, effectively with, with oils and things. Uh, in Australia, particularly in New South Wales, they're on easy street up there. They've got a nine-month season, and um, brood the brood uh, doesn't shut down, or if it does, it's only for a very short period, and that allows the mite numbers to build up very rapidly. And since the mite was found in Britain, how have they recovered from the devastation? And do you think it's possible that Australia's, at least their non-native bee colonies, will recover when the situation after the situation gets out of hand? Uh, look, I think um, you only got to look at New Zealand. They've had grower mite there for years and they managed to control it. And um, I, I see the same thing happening here. We've just got to move. If we move to a management situation, then we've just got to pick our, our methods of management and make sure they work. What, what kind of uh, math, ma- management methods do you think will end up um, adapting in Australia? Oh, it's hard to say. It depends on the size of the operation, really. I mean, if you're running a really big operation, you're probably going to go chemical. Um, my size of operation, I will certainly be trying drone trapping and um, organic methods. Let's say that Australia did lose the fight and it was everywhere. What kind of hope do beekeepers have and what would happen to businesses like yours as well as smaller beekeeping businesses? Well, we all, we all just have to adapt. Um, it's going to be a cost. Uh, I mean, even if you go down the chemical road, you know, big operations can spend $100,000 on chemical strips, and that doesn't include the labour to administer them. I know I know that's the case or was the case about five years ago. One big firm in New Zealand, on their bottom line, there was $100,000 on paper stand. Yeah, and it's just going to mean that we keep less hives or we employ more staff, and the resulting cost of that is that pollination services are going to get more expensive, and... Um, Cost of honey, well, cost of honey is too cheap anyway. I mean, if you look at what we get for a kilo of honey now, it's ridiculous if you compare what we were getting in 2000. You buy CPI to it, gosh. And that's the major problem in the industry. We don't get enough for our honey. Would you say that honey should be a luxury item? Honey? Well, it is a luxury item. If people get tight on money, they decide they can do without it. And that that's fact of life. Fair enough. It's kind of um, hard to imagine, um, yeah. you know, honey being so expensive, especially like myself as a consumer. I, you know, I use honey a lot. And it, if it became a, very expensive, I think it would be like, I think I would have to accept that, you know, it's now something that is, um, you know, a luxury item because of the costs of raising bees and keeping bees. Yeah. Well, labor costs are going through the roof. Fuel costs, yeah, they're they're going up and up and up. I mean, just it's just inputs are constantly going up, and the only thing that's not going up is the price of honey. Is it because of the demand? No, I think it's more to do with the fact that people, if they can do without it, if they've got to do without something, they'll they'll do without their honey, unless unless they're using something like manuka for medicinal purposes. Um, that that market is still about the same. 
Yeah, Manuka's always been um, very expensive honey. Uh, that's for sure. And and it's yeah, it's been praised as uh, something like um like a miracle for some people. Like they use it on for skin conditions and things like that. Yeah, applied topically can have really wonderful results, particularly leg ulcers and things for diabetics. And so, with the situation with the varroa mite situation, is there anything that beekeepers can do now, or is it more of a watch and wait kind of situation? So under our national code of practice, we're required to test our apiaries at least once a year, um, looking for row and the methods of doing that, um, an alcohol wash where we take a sample of 300 bees or so and we, we uh, drown them in alcohol and shake them with a special shaker. And if there are varroa mites present, they usually fall through the sieve and you see them in the bottom of the container. That's one way of doing it. The other way is when you've got drones in your hives, um, you extract some of the brood with an uncapping fork, and if there's varroa present, you'll see them running around on the pupae. And we've got to re- we've got to do that testing and keep records of it. Yeah, and so I guess that that's the only thing that beekeepers can do is just keep watching out for the mite. That's right. <laughs> hope it doesn't reach you. Yeah. yeah, well, that's right. As I say, it's possible. I hope not, but it is possible that it's here already. And if it's here in very low numbers, it'll be a few years before we before it multiplies up to detectable levels and um we just to keep our fingers crossed the situation is very saddening for many apiarists and it's caused a lot of stress for those who've had their hives destroyed how's it affected you because you know you've been through this in the uk and knowing what could happen um well it's not affected me at all yet really um I mean, I, some people get emotionally attached to their bees, and I do too, but at the end of the day, if you've got to kill the bees to try and eradicate this thing, then you have to kill the bees. And we, I was up there for 10 days, and um, we killed quite a, quite a lot of hives. I think we did about 1,300 our team in the 10 days that we were there. But as far as my own operation here in Tassie, and we haven't got it, we're just testing and um, continuously looking for it. And hopefully we never find it. Definitely hoping. Mm. And I want to ask you about some, um, you know, myths about varroa mite. Some beekeepers have expressed that they believe the situation is hyped up or that the mite doesn't even exist. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's nonsense. It exists all right. Yeah, I've seen it. I, I saw I saw it up there. I mean, there's no question that it exists. Why do you think they don't even believe it might exist? Well, yeah, you get these conspiracy theorists coming up with all these crackpot ideas, don't you, on, on all sorts of issues around the world. I mean, there, there's no question that it exists. I saw it. Definitely. Um, I I guess um, one of the, the things that they've been talking about in the reports is that the sentinel hives, that the varroa mite got got past them or that they were detected in the hi- in the sentinel hives, but they still managed to, to get through and become a, a biosecurity hazard for most of New South Wales. Can you explain what sentinel hives are and are they still effective and relevant even throughout the current varroa pandemic? Well, thank God we got them because if we didn't have those sentinel hives, we still wouldn't be aware that it was here. But let's let's just get one thing straight. It didn't come in through the port. The epicentre of the outbreak was inland and it spread outwards until it hit the sentinel hive in the port. I run a sentinel hive here in Hobart for biosecurity and I think they are essential, but it's not going to be an early warning. Arbica trying to get um, bait hives so that if a swarm did arrive, we would get a, an earlier response on that. But 
they're expensive to install as well. But um, no, Sentinel Hives, I think they've got a place, but we also need bait hives as well. Are, are they um, are Sentinel Hives run by um, European honeybees? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, the uh, biosecurity got some of their own hives, but I use one of my hives here in Hobart. That's down in the botanical gardens. And um, we carry out tests on that and have done for years. I suppose that even um, other viruses and things can still be detected there, if even if it's not the varroa mite. Um, well, we just take the, the strips out, like we put sticky mats, and not strips, sticky mats we put in the hives, and um, we send them off to biosecurity and they, they do their tests on it. At the moment, um, everything's been pretty clear, I think. That's good news. As far as as far as other, it's been clear as far as Varroa goes, but I think it's clear as far as anything else goes as well, because we also send samples of bees in uh, as part of that uh, monitoring program. And could you talk about the importance of hive checking? And are there beekeepers out there who avoid it? Oh yeah, <laughs> human nature being what it is. I mean, some people just say, oh, "I'm not going to bother with that," but it is important. It really is, and. Um, we, we stress it a lot at the local association and uh, I run courses and um, we, we always put big emphasis on t- testing your hives. It's the only way you're going to get an early re- response if it does get here. What happened uh, when you were lobbying the government about uh, the leatherwood forests? Because I know that uh, I was lucky enough to try some leatherwood honey in the Salamanca market in Hobart and I know that it's a type of honey that's native to Tasmania. You can't get it anywhere else in the world. Um, can you tell us a bit more about it and um, and are, they, are the forests still in danger? Oh, God, yes. We've lost 80% of the resource. We've only got 20% left. You know, it, it, it's it's a wonderful honey. It, it's not everybody's taste and we accept that. But generally speaking, it is a widely accepted as a, as a wonderful honey. It's won the world's best honey twice at the Open Mondia conferences. In 2007, Julian Wolfhagen won the world's best honey, and in 2015, the state president, Lindsay Burke, won it. And, you know, that speaks volumes itself, the fact that it's, it's won the world's best honey twice. Uh, we've got a world monopoly on it. It's absolutely stupid to keep chopping it down. But we can't can't get that message across to the government. And also, it's the only tree in the Tasmanian forest that's guaranteed to flower every year. Um, on mainland Australia, they've got 700 species of eucalypt and there's always something to move on to. But in Tassie, we've only got 27 species of eucalypt and only five of those produce harvestable quantities of nectar. And then that's very spasmodically. Uh, you know, every five years or every two years, some of them are every 20 years. So leatherwood is absolutely important to commercial beekeeping in Tasmania. And if you don't have commercial beekeeping, you don't have a pollination industry either. But, you know, they do this clear fill burn and sow here as a forest practice. And um, it's the burning that, that mucks everything up because that just sterilises everything and destroys the leatherwood stumps, which are caught up as a bycatch of harvesting the eucalypts. But when they burn and uh, the stump is destroyed, that takes away the ability of leatherwood to coppice, which it will do. I mean, if they didn't burn, the leatherwood would coppice and we'd be back to full production in 20 years. And so it's not something that you can farm. It's something that you have to, um, f- like, find in the in the wilderness, right? Well, yeah, it's an 80-year 80, 80 lead-in. You know, the, the tree doesn't start producing 
quantities of nectar until it's 30 years old. And to be a commercial producer of nectar, it's going to be 80 years old. So to plant it for, for future, and, it, and it's a rainforest species, it needs a lot of water. So you know, to farm it is not really a viable option. And uh, what about the the climate? I know that um, you know there's been fires down in Tasmania. How has that affected uh, the leatherwood down there? Uh, we've lost a little bit of it, but not not a huge amount. Rainforest doesn't burn that well. So when we have big fires, the sections of rainforest where the leatherwood is, we we'll probably lose 25, 50 metres each time there's a fire. It, gets, it keeps getting smaller and smaller, but not not it doesn't affect us hugely. We had big fires here in 2019 and that wiped out some leatherwood, but um, didn't affect me personally. I'm very fortunate. All my sites and all my hives survived that. Would you say it's a limited resource and is there a lot of competition between uh, commercial beekeepers to try and access the leatherwood? Oh, too right. Um, yeah, the politics in Tasmanian beekeeping over leatherwood sites is something to behold. Um, there are no new leatherwood sites available and uh, there's been a lot of skullduggery and infighting over leatherwood sites. Are there parts of the rainforest that are inaccessible? Yes. Yeah, and and parks are allowing us in in the World Heritage Area, but it's getting more difficult, particularly as roads um, fall into disrepair. Some of them are so expensive, beekeepers couldn't afford to do them. Some areas, parks are just rehabilitating the roads back to, to forest and um, we're trying to negotiate that we're still allowed our access to our sites. But, you know, bridges going down and down in the Huon, some of the, the roads, the culverts were timber culverts and the fires went through and destroyed some of these timber culverts. So that's uh, that's also limiting our resource. How do you see the future of uh, of leatherwood production in Tasmania? Well, I don't think it's going to go up. We've always been around the thousand ton mark, and we're just getting better at beekeeping. We requeen more regularly, and our hives are stronger when we go out there. But we've sort of reached, we've plateaued out of that. You can only improve hives through genetics and and better beekeeping to a certain point. And once you reach that point, that's it. You're then on how much resource have you got? And unfortunately, that's still diminishing. I've noticed that you've um, adopted polystyrene hives for your colonies. Where did you learn about them and what are the advantages of having a polystyrene hive? Yeah, look, I came across those oh, eight years ago, I suppose. I'd started to um, convert a lot of my hives to lids without vents because of an article that was in Australian Beekeeping Magazine by John Tadman. And a few beekeepers here had tried that where he was blocking off the vents and insulating the lids and um, reducing any condensation in the hives. And the condensation just disappeared where people would have half a cup full of condensation in their lids. They had none. So I started to convert all my hives to that sort of lid. And then I went to New South Wales conference and Victor Croker was there with his paradise hives. And I looked at them and I thought, mm, that's interesting. Extra polar, you know, the extra insulation from the, the polystyrene, the bees just love it. It's so warm in there. And um, I bought one and I was just blown away by the difference between that and a wooden hive. And I bought another seven when he came down to our field day. And then I decided to change my whole operation over to polystyrene. 
I haven't done that yet. I've only done about half. But um, those who run wooden hives and polystyrene hives together, they soon pick the difference because the, the queen just accelerates so fast because of all the extra warmth. Um, the numbers build up very quickly in the hive. And it's easier on the bees too. I mean, they don't have to, in the, up on the mainland there, they don't have to go and get so much water because the temperature in the hive is easier to control. And down here in Tassie, it's, it's so much warmer. They don't have to consume so much honey to keep it warm. And there's other advantages that sort of came along by accident and that they found that termites don't eat them. So we don't have that problem here in Tassie, but I know that's been a bonus up in the mainland. And Victor's gone on to make his own now. He's running Hive IQ, and uh, that's a far superior hive to the one that was being imported. It keeps the it, it keeps the bees a lot warmer, so I guess that's the main advantage. Um, and uh, and and like you said, that's very important for a lot of resources and, and things like that. Um, but would you say that it's kind of like a balance, you know, um, in a hotter climate, um, would there be a dis- any disadvantages to having a polystyrene hive for bee heat stress? No. No, it's like like insulating your roof. It's cool in summer and warm in winter. You've got you've got it's it's much easier to modulate the temperature in a polystyrene hive, whether it be in a hot climate or whether it be in a cool climate. That's really that's a really good technology. Yeah. Oh look, it, it, people people think that they're fragile, but it's high density polystyrene, the bees don't chew it. Yeah, I think it's a win-win-win. And they also, the other advantage, of course, is that they last a lot longer than timber. Are there any other new beekeeping technologies that you've adapted? I'm always looking out for them. Uh, we use we use a new, well, it's not that new now. I was using it in the UK. I was the first one to import it over there. But there's a half comb cassette that you put in the hive and the bees actually put the comb honey in the box and all you do is take it out and put a lid on it. We've been using them for a while. Yeah, and do you think there are a lot of people trying to make new bee technologies now, like now that beekeeping is becoming a lot, you know, there's a lot more um, obstacles in the way for beekeepers, aren't there? Yeah, thankfully they are. People are always trying to improve the situation and full full marks to them, particularly with Varroa, you know, different treatments coming along. Can you tell us a bit more about the beekeeping courses that you run um, with Heritage Honey and um, what kind of things do new beekeepers learn? Oh, we start from the basics, and it's a, an eight-session course. Um, we do it on a Tuesday and a Thursday in the evenings for three weeks, and we also do two Sunday mornings practicals. And we go right through from the basics of what you need to start beekeeping through to manipulating the hives and uh, disease recognition, which we did this week. And tonight, we last night tonight, we're doing um, preparing honey for sale and extraction and so hopefully by the end of the course they've they've got enough confidence and knowledge to run their bees properly. Do you think there are a lot more new beekeepers um, taking up the hobby or less than before? Oh god, yeah. So look, it's it's really really accelerated very fast. I mean, when I when I joined the Southern Beekeepers Association, that was two thousand and three or two somewhere around it. It was about twenty members, and now we've got three hundred and forty, and that's been very pleasing. But we also benefit as a, as a beekeeping equipment supplier. We, we've sold a lot of equipment to these newbies. And as long as they do it properly, that's the main thing. Yeah, I guess we need more beekeepers than ever, right? Yep. But, yeah, as I say, they've got to do it right. And we don't want – there is it's, – it's sort of a very contagious 
thing, uh, beekeeping, um, infectious or contagious, but, you know, you can, addictive even, um, you know, you see a lot of people, they'll come in and they'll do the course and they'll have a couple of hives and then the next year they've got 20 hives and then suddenly they're out to 50 hives and then three years later they've got no hives because they haven't haven't allowed for the time that it takes to run these hives. They haven't invested in lifting equipment and it is hard work, physical work. And um, so we always give people, you know, a warning. It is addictive and make haste slowly. Is it difficult to run an urban hive? No, not at all. Um, you know, in Melbourne, it's very popular. In London, it was very popular. And Hobart here, they've just changed the, the bylaw about five years ago. Um, took us three years to get it changed. But um, <clears throat> up until then, it was pretty well impossible to keep bees in Hobart because of the distance required from a dwelling, which was 50 metres. But uh, we've presented them with a code of practice and um, we got a unanimous vote at the council and we're now allowed to keep bees in Hobart. Long, and we, we just urge everybody to stick to the code of practice. main thing is that you keep quiet strains of bees and not, not really aggressive bees that go and attack your neighbours. What kind of bees are more quiet? Oh, look, it's, it's not limited to any one, one race of bee. I mean, we've got several strains of bees. They're all Apis mellifera, but You've got mainly mainly uh, Italian bees that we use in the commercial industry, but there are some who use Caucasians. I've got Caucasian breeder myself, and it's just just selecting the bees that that are very quiet. They don't they don't flare up when you open them up all the time, and don't follow you. That's that's probably one of the big things in urban beekeeping. You don't want them following you, and. Um, yeah, you just got to select from the, the good, quiet bees when you're raising queens. And there are people who do that, not so much in Tasmania, and we're going to be at a bit of a disadvantage for a while because we're not allowed to import breeder queens now. But, um, yeah, we, we've got plenty of genetic stock here in Tassie and we all share it around. Yeah, I guess, um, what, what would you say is the most aggressive kind of bee? Uh, I don't think you can say it's in any one particular strain of bee they, because each strain you can get a very aggressive yeah, I've got some Italians that are really, you know, they're killer bees. But then as a general rule, Italian bees are quite quiet. But you can't you can't sort of hang your hat on it. It's it's not hard and fast. Um Caucasians, they they can be quite quiet and carny olands, they're they're usually quite good as well. But it's just a matter of selecting the, the bad temperament ones out of it and just keep breeding from the quiet ones and then you end up with a nice quiet bee. All right. Um, thank you so much, Peter, for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.